Nope, motherfucker, we got a spaceship with a gigantic time turner on it. Hey everybody, Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Hi. And today we're talking Apparitions, Ghosts of Old Edo by Miyuki Miyabe, translated by Daniel Huddleston. This is a collection of nine ghost stories. Um, we only had time to read the first five, so we'll be doing this in two parts, as usual. Uh, Steve, what was? Uh, how did you think of the book? I really enjoyed this book um, for, for two reasons. First, it's got that Japanese flavor to it, so it's a little bit of a breath of, of fresh air from what we're normally reading. And the second is it really gives an insight into that 17th or 18th, 19th century Japan from a point of view that we don't normally get. Normally, we get like the, uh, the samurai point of view, or or like the point of view from the ninja clan or something. And here we have just regular people doing regular things, just having mm-hmm. to be involved in ghost stories. Well, not always regular people. Definitely the merchant class. Yeah. Well, it's the merchant class and the peasants that work for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 you're right. It is is it's definitely a break from a lot of the things that we've been reading. Um, you know, over the last month we've been doing a lot of sword and soul, so we've had Africa on our mind. Uh, prior to that was uh, Lovecraftian fiction and and Western ghost stories for Halloween. Most of that taking place, you know, Western, very um, Americanized in some cases. Uh, Definitely Western European influences there. So, yeah, we definitely get a sense of something a little bit different, a little bit extra flavor there with the uh, the references to the Japanese culture of the time period, old Edo, uh, Tokyo, if you're not familiar with it. Yeah, and, you know, it was, it was a nice insight into seeing it. Uh, now, I will say that this is not a collection of horror stories. This is a collection of ghost stories. Right. If you're expecting The Grudge or um, Ring or whatever, you, you get, like, the basis of those stories, but not the added-on blood, guts, gore, jump scares that those franchises right. have. Right, right. And in a lot of these stories, the, the, the ghostly element is very subtle. Right. Um, which brings us in right into the first story, the, the drowsing dream of Shinji, which Miyabe does a fantastic job of setting uh, Shinji up as an unreliable narrator. Right. Because he's, he's, he's young. And trying to uh, excel at the abacus, he's been losing sleep. Right. So, well, and not only that, but he's he's. Um, well, you said he was young, but he's like super young. He is mm-hmm. like a fresh apprentice, which is like what ten or eleven years old. Something like that. Something like that. Um, most of the other stories refer to people entering the service of some of these uh, businesses at ten, eleven. 
and and being like full on member, you know, full on employees by the time they're sixteen. Right. Now the, the the story starts out with like a a story within a story. Mm-hmm. You have a, it just t- talks about there's a series of double suicides. Yep. Um, and the one thing they have in common is they wrapped their their wrists together with uh, tea towels, mm-hmm. printed tea towels from very specific, wholesaler. yeah, from very specific tea towels from a very specific wholesaler, and actually tea towels depicting a very specific scene. Right from from a, a popular story, mm-hmm. which I, I'm I'm guessing that it's a a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing, um, but I might I might be mistaken. It's been a little while since I've read the tale of Genji, so I'm, I'm not familiar with every single scene off the top of my head. But it is a scene from the tale of Genji, if I recall correctly. Right, so um, eventually, what ends up happening is the shogunate blames the wholesaler mm-hmm. and shuts him down. Which right. gives you a little um, insight into how the Shogunate works. <laughs> right. This is this is kind of to to use a to use a comparison of American culture, this is kinda of like if the government had said uh, you know, Led Zeppelin was causing Satanism and, and stop selling and forced Atlantic records out of business. Right. <laughs> So it's the equivalent of Reagan in the AIDS. Yeah. Or, <coughs> anyway, <laughs> I was going to say something that'll probably get me arrested. Uh, don't do that. So um, once we have that backstory set, then we go into the meat of the story where we find uh, young Shinju working for this wholesaler. Of a uh, of cloth, right? He's a cloth wholesaler, and yeah. he he strikes up a bit of a relationship with their son, who's kind of a, a gadfly, mm-hmm. and his son starts using him to uh to, to run errands for him and to visit the old master and stuff like that. Right, and uh, we come to find out that that the son of the owners has um had multiple affairs with the women around town and and, and all uh, like approaching his arranged marriage to a, to another woman we find out that he's been having an affair with one of the housemaids and has gotten her pregnant yes and he got in trouble with his grandfather for suggesting that they start selling tea towels yep who, he was shot down saying we're a wholesale of cloth. We don't make tea towels. Basically, that is for um, a, a tea towel shop to do. Mm-hmm. They buy our cloth and then they make the tea towels. Only tragedy can come out of this. Is basically what he says. Remember what happened with the double suicides. Right. And then we go into the the detailed explanation of what happened to the housemaid uh basically she was paid off and sent away yeah you know under like a really harsh agreement that if you know you break this agreement in any way we're just going to come and we're going to 
you know, you're going to live here, you're going to nurse your kid for so many years, and then you got to give up the kid. And you got to give up the kid, and and you can never speak of this ever. It's like the harshest non-compete ever. Right. Total total NDA there. Right. Turns she, out she, she agrees to this because she had really had no choice. Right. Right. She she had no choice. I mean, it's not like an unwed mother in you know Edo period Japan can go home and. You know, with with the young master's child, right, and and then turn around and and get a job later and stuff like that. So she takes the deal and is sent far away. Uh, Genji is doing his job. He's becoming good at his job. He's learning to read. He's learning to write. He's learning to use the abacus, so he can eventually rise and become a clerk. Um, and then the young master comes to him and says, "I need you to go." to her house and bring her this kimono and just do it. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you I borrowed some books and I need you to return them. But what I really need you to do is take this kimono over to her house. Right. And so he does like a good little employee. At that point, you don't really have a choice. Well, no. I mean, at, at this for for sorry, that's me. For the um, people involved in you know the employees and whatnot, they're very much in a kind of surf situation as well, uh, where you know the owners of the shop and their immediate family are like the lords of the manor, and you are a vassal. You know, they've taken you in out of the goodness of their own heart, so you owe them for your livelihood. So if the young master says do something, better to do it than to go home in shame. Right. Well, and I think she um, she puts a bit of social commentary in here criticizing this. I don't think she accepts this wholeheartedly. I think she definitely, you know, just like little subtle things that she'll say. Mm -hmm. um, like, at one point, he, he, she says, uh, Genji would get the feeling that he somehow understood why his elder brother had stumbled into a light of dissipation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, if you think about it, I mean, it's a pretty shitty lot in life to be a, uh, a peasant in Edo period Japan. Right. You know, might as well be a drunk and a gambler than, you know, and be privy to all the all the dirt and madness that goes on. It's very very soap opera y. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a lot of these, there's a lot of skullduggery, a lot of backstabbing going on. Right. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a Schadenfreude with the with the maids when they find out that the the one maid got pregnant. They completely blame her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and and, and, and uh, Genji is very, you can tell he just doesn't want to really have anything to do with any of it. Right. He doesn't want to any, have anything to do with any of it. He doesn't really understand any of it, being as young as he is. Uh, you know, and it's, it's also, you see it, this, you know, she was getting the blame. And it wasn't just the maids engaging in some shot and proud. It was the, the master's family themselves 
We're like, it's your fault. You seduced my son. And it's funny very much a mirror. On, well, they keep on saying that she wasn't all that good looking and she wasn't all that nice. Right. <laughs> so, she, wasn't, she wasn't good looking. She wasn't but it's your son's fault. I mean, it's not your son's fault. It's her right. fault. Right. You didn't raise a horny son of a bitch. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, the, the, the boys without fault. And then and, and that is a bit of a commentary as well. It's holding a mirror up to the foibles of patriarchal society. Right. And, and honestly, I mean, if you look at the way Japan is structured now, you get a, a very similar situation with uh, salary men mm-hmm. working for these huge companies. It, it's not a lot different. I'm wondering if she meant a little bit of that as a jab to uh, modern Japan as well. More, more than likely, I would, I would imagine. So Shinji goes off on his errand. Um, the town is a good distance away, and he's already tired. Uh, he was up all night playing with the abacus, trying to get better so he could be a good company man. Um, so he decides to run the entire way, <laughs> or most of the way. Right through the rice paddies. Mm-hmm. To this, and, and she lives in this area that has just been opened up, is how they describe it. Right. And it's just basically it's farmland that they're allowing people to build houses on now. Right. It, Tokyo annexed some land, basically, is what mm-hmm. it sounds like. Yeah. And so he goes to the house, finds no one home, and since, you know, it's, you don't just let yourself in, you he sat and waited because he had to fulfill his duty. He could not return with the package. And he waits, and he waits, and he falls asleep at the door. Then he has a dream. Yeah. It's a very weird, weird dream, too. Mm-hmm. Where um, he basically sees... Her name is um, Oharu. Oharu. And his master. Um, tied together, more or less, with one of the, with the tea towels. Mm-hmm. Lying... Floating in the river. Yeah. Dead. Like, like the previous um, suicide, double suicides. Right. Um, and as they float closer to where he's observing them from, Oharu's eyes open. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's probably... That's, that's a striking moment there. Uh, yeah. He wakes up in a cold sweat, as you do. Right. And, you know, think, here's giggling inside or talking and, and right, thinking that maybe Oharu came home and was having a bit of a laugh at this young kid passed out on her porch. It should be noted that when Oharu was um, thrown out of the merchant house, the other housemaids salted the entryways. Mm-hmm which is to prevent um, bad luck. And we should also mention that when the young master sends Genji on this mission, he makes mention that uh, he believes Oharu's soul is leaving her body at night and coming to visit him. Right. So 
we don't know what is superstitious and what is reality here. And then to top that off, we have this impressionable kid who is our narrative or our point of view. Right. So he enters the house as you do. Right. And he gets a genre point for that. <laughs> um, enters the house, finds bodies in the main room of the house. Yeah. Familiar bodies. Familiar bodies. Wearing the matching kimonos that he is carrying in a bundle. Yes. Already dead. And then he hears giggling down the hall. So, again, getting a genre point, he gets the fuck out. Yeah, well, you would have to at that point. Right. He runs clear through <laughs> um, checkpoint gates. Yep. Guards <laughs> are chasing him. He alerts the, the, the thief catchers. Right. He's, he's, he is just booking it straight. I mean, he's just running. He's not stopping to show his papers or to talk to anybody. He's just like, ah! And just straight booking it. Finally, he gets tackled by a cop. A thief taker, which is like a private cop. And the thief taker's like, well, what's all this about then? And he can tell Genji is scared shitless. So he takes him, somehow figures out the best place to take him is to the guy that got him the job. (laughs) I can't take him back to his house. I can't take him back to where he works. So I'm going to take him to the middleman. The middleman will know what to do. And the middleman does know what to do because you know that's that's he's the fixer. He he does it all. Right. Says I'll get you another job. <laughs> and basically, yeah, he's like, look, kid, you know. He, and Genji, you know, wakes up. Apparently, the old man has an idea of what's going on because he's got his finger on the pulse of everything. Well, he's gotten a lot of people jobs there. Right. He's, he got his older brother a job there too, but he didn't last long. And he got his older brother job, older brother's jobs at other places. Right. But Genji is there. He's he's passed out for like what a couple days. Yeah, he's he's done for a while. And he's he goes, okay, so whatever happened there, you know, you can't go back. I'll I'll find you another job. I'll find you something else to do. Don't don't worry about that. Just don't talk about what you did, what you saw. And the thief taker was also, yeah, to definitely don't talk about what you, what happened and what you saw. And turns out, well, actually, no, we shouldn't spoil the ending of this. No, we shouldn't. Now, one of the interesting things we we mentioned about Shinji or Genji, or is it, it is Shinji? It's Genji. It's Genji? I'm sorry. I think it's Genji. Yeah, yeah. I wrote Shinji, Shinji, but it's Genji. Genji. Um, the thing about Genji is, is he's set up as, as uh, this unreliable narrator. Also, it's it's really clever how Miyabe used didn't tell us exactly what was real and what was hallucination and what was dream. Right. Things were implied. Is it, there was a lot of uh, suggestion going on here, and right. it. 
the power of suggestibility in a child, particularly, right. we are given the backstory of the, the suicide packs, um, which apparently must be common knowledge to pretty much everybody in that part of town. Then we are you know, led along through this like slice of life type of story. And then we're introduced to the concept of, you know, the soul leaving the body to come and torment a person um, who's who's done them wrong. Which is a thing in Japan, America. Yeah. Not like she just pulled this out of a hat. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of Japanese, especially the ghost stories, revolve around um, being wronged and, and having unfinished unfinished business like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so we have Genji having his hallucination slash vision. Even he doesn't know if it was just a dream or he saw something real. So it's just kind of left up in the air as to what happened. Right. He's very confused. Um, at one point, he tries to figure out how his master could have gotten there before he did. Right. And why he would even bother sending Gigi in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, well, well done. It doesn't lay everything out in front of you. Right. And it's definitely it's definitely one of those stories that where the supernatural elements are kept mysterious. Right. It could I mean, be the supernatural element. It could be just coincidence. Mm-hmm. There could be a logical explanation for it. Correct. And it's really like a lot of the best, like straight up ghost stories, are are like that. Mm-hmm. They leave you guessing. Leave you guessing yeah, as to if whether you have a definite ghost, then you're definitely floating more into the horror aspect of it because you know, okay, it's a ghost, so what? Right. But the fun of of a ghost story is trying to figure out if it was a ghost or not, mm-hmm. as opposed to doing the body count and seeing how many people go right. mad. Right, where you where you sit down, you end the story, and you go, well, was that a, was was that a ghost? Right, or was that not? And it's not. It's not. You're gonna fucking die, Randolph Carter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um. Yeah, and that that brings us that that whole what is truth and what is reality carries on into the next story, Cage of Shadows. Yes, Cage of Shadows. And and then this this kind of reminded me a little bit of of like a fragment of Rashomon, where the the magistrate is interviewing four witnesses, trying to piece together the truth. Right, or like that uh that Batman. The animated series episode point of view, mm-hmm. which is the same kind of thing, probably based on the same story, right? Um, so what we have in in this story is we have a narrator who is speaking to a detective, right, about an incident that happened at the place where he worked. Now the the interesting thing is, is that we establish. A little bit of uh, unreliability in the narrator because some time has passed. 
some time has passed, and he is a company man who he is a company man. is trying to cover his own ass. Right. Although he's, it seems by the time you get to the end of the story, it seems that he's on his deathbed himself. Right. But there is a question at the end whether or not he may have actually done it instead of implied supernatural. Mm-hmm. And this story, we, we so yeah, we get a lot of it. You know, this is told after some time. The person who is relaying the story uh, is is older. Uh, the detective he's speaking to is actually the second generation, so he's talking about a case that his father investigated, right? Um, originally, and. And even then, our narrator is telling this story pretty much third-hand. He was a background character in all of this and wasn't present for most of the events. Right. He's the the guy who just happens to see stuff every once in a while. Right. And and knows what the rumors are about. So more or less what you have is a family that owns a business. Mm -hmm. um, And... Through the generations, they kind of um, get more and more um, less uh, moral. Mm-hmm. And by the time we have the current or the, the then current generation, um, they were uh, it was a complete shit show. Right. Very very House of Usher. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you had um, apparently it was a successful business that had incurred some debt. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to get rid of this debt, they, they cut a deal where their son, who is a bit of a Lothario himself, um, they cut a deal for him to marry the youngest daughter of, of another merchant family. And she is is um, also um, a sinner. Right. She's, she's a Lothario. They can't, they can't get rid of her. Her family can't get rid of her, and they really need to because her reputation is a stain on their family. Mm-hmm. But they must have been in a lot of debt because they accept her into marrying their son. Right. And they do this, and soon after they, they make this arrangement, the father, the head of the business, dies. Right. And so the, the son, Lothario, takes over and... This uh, this lady, his wife, becomes the head of the household, essentially. Right. Now, we, but we still have his mother is, mm-hmm. is really running things. Right. And she knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the son and his wife really don't. Right. And for some reason, because she's just evil, the new bride... Um, Attempts makes an attempt on the life of, of her mother-in-law. Right. Now this is all rumor. Right. Which which we are told this is a you know, don't don't take my word for it. Right. But I heard she tried to kill her one day right. by by pushing over a pallet of uh, wax tablets mm-hmm. onto her, and the the it's implied that it, it that it was an a, attempt on her life because those pallets don't fall over on their own. Right. 
It's like, have you ever seen blocked wax? Blocked wax, even when it's stacked, is very stable. And, you know, while they're heavy enough to kill, say, a small child that they fall on, they usually don't fall over. Right. Wink, wink. Right. So, so um, the mother ends up being gravely injured by this. Not gravely injured. She hurt her foot. But, well, no, that's right. But she gets, uh, she gets put into a cell. Oh, yeah. daughter-in-law on the pretext that she's gravely injured, and she agrees to it to keep the peace, more or less. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's how it pans out. Right. She's confined. They they build this special room. It, it's got like a double <laughs> double entranceway with complicated locks. It's, right. It's like <laughs> no yeah. windows, you know that sort of thing. It's essentially it's a cell. Yeah, it's it's the cask of a Montevillo in in a mother. It, yeah, it's it's very much it's very much uh, Edgar Allan Poe influence here. Um, and so the idea is is that the wife confines her to this cell and says, "Look, don't worry about it. I'm the head of the household. I'll take care of her. Don't you guys worry about it. She's doing fine. Everything's fine here. Just do your jobs." And over the time progresses again, and over the years, you know, they're still wondering, you know, what's going on? Why hasn't the, you know, the lady we like come out of the cell? Because all the employees liked the mother-in-law. Right. Um, you know, they respected her business acumen. They found her to be a fair and just employer. And her son and her daughter-in-law were just not that kind of people. They were cruel um, they continued to sleep around even after they were married. Um, they had children, and their children were even worse than the parents. Right, and the children have questionable parenthood parentage as well. Yes, right. Um, it implies that son, one of them is his child but not hers. The other one is her child but not his. And the third was their child, but he was so sickly anyway that he, he was lucky to have lived as long as he did. Right. I think he lived till he was like 15 or something like that, and then he died. Right. Well, then he died because of what, what happens in the story. <laughs> right. He was, yeah. So, so you get this, and then you come to find out that the mother in the cell wasn't doing as well as was reported. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, they let her just ride away and die, and kept her in that cell. Right. And like, then, like a, a, a rat carcass. Kind of. They just kind of left her there. And then something else happens to one of the housemaids. And our narrator believes he hears the, the mistress of the house say, Don't worry. I owe these people. There will be vengeance. Right. <laughs> the housemaid in question is this beautiful young girl mm-hmm. who um, all the male members of the family have taken a shine to. And right. by shine, I mean, like, don't leave them alone with her. It's bad. Right. Um, and as a matter of fact, she goes to live with the detective, the original detective, for a while as his housemate to get them away from her. Yes. Get her away from the family. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, and because something bad was going to happen. Yeah. And everybody knew it. Right. Um, and something bad does happen. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the exact ending, but I will say that the, the House of Usher comparisons were pretty much right. Yeah. That they, the family ends up all dying on the same day or the same evening because they were all getting drunk together. And they ended up drinking rat poison. And that the question is who poisoned that? Mm-hmm. Because people have been seeing mom around, according to the narrator. Right. According to the narrator, all the employees have been seeing the mother-in-law around. Uh, but no, you know, when asked about it, the the family just kind of gets gets sketchy. Right. And they're all drunken and carousing one night, the sons and the father and the the wife. And they all end up dying um, after some rather violent outbursts. You know, and, and this is reported not firsthand. This is reported this is what we heard through the grapevine. And then, and only then do we realize that after the family has died, that the mother-in-law has been dead the whole time. Right. Um, wasted away. And there's even an implication that uh, the fella telling the story snuck in or one of the other uh, employees, the head clerk, uh, snuck in, you know, got had an extra key made by the guy that designed the vault. Right. And snuck in there and ended the mother-in-law's life out of compassion. Right. So it, it, we get another one of those endings where it, it could be the mother-in-law's ghost getting revenge. It could be the uh, narrator who obviously loved his uh, old mistress, right. uh, just couldn't take it anymore and was trying to figure out a way to to do this without getting caught. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's several several different possibilities. Right, and and listening to him recount the story later, there's several moments where he justify tries to justify himself and his opinions of the his employers by saying, you know, could you stand having a child like that? Yeah, you know, is it you know is it right that a person behaves in such a way? Right. Um, it's it's kind of funny because they make this uh, the original owners to be these saints, mm-hmm. um, but. They've raised um, their son. <laughs> right. I mean, he, he didn't just become a, a debauch <laughs> on, you know, mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Well, you see that, I mean, that happens in, in both the, the first two stories, is that both families have a son. They're successful businesses, and it leads them to a certain amount of wealth and their children are just kind of like given free reign to do whatever they are. These entitled rich kids. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's usually sons. And these sons are to do whatever they want. They, they pretty much buy their way out of trouble, you know, and then they just, they go through this, this life without struggle and without discipline. And they become these awful people. 
Uh, in the case of the first story, you know, the son changes his ways. And in the second story, he just keeps on going and he raises another generation of absolutely awful children. Right. And even worse than him. Right. And his, the cycle just keeps going. And it almost gives you a feeling of, you know, nature being self-correcting <laughs> in a lot of ways because the, the entire business burns down. Right. And exactly. Um, and, and you are left with this once again, left with the feeling of did something supernatural happen here or not? Now we get to the third story, the futon storeroom and the futon storeroom is a little bit more a horror story. Yeah, the futon storeroom definitely has its roots, um, in a more Western, I guess. Mm hmm. Um, storytelling uh, tale tale of the macabre yeah it's not as uh as 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 uh more morale spinning right. yeah um as, as the as the other two were the other two were like this is what happens when you raise asshole kids mm -hmm. yep there is uh, definitely a um there is definitely a sense of kind of an aesop fable type of thing a religious right. story um, you know, these Japanese parables are often like that, you know, from what I've read in like Buddhist texts and things. Um, the, this story, yeah, definitely takes a little bit more of the Western tradition of supernatural storytelling or macabre storytelling. Uh, and it is a weird tale. Yeah. Because even then, it's not clear what's going on until the very end you get a clear idea and it's a little bit more than suggested this time yeah this it, it certainly is this one the way it pans out in the end is you definitely have something supernatural happening here but the supernatural occurrence isn't negative no, no. There's a, there's a little bit of both. There's a little bit of both. Right, right. There, there is, um, but the outcome is a negative. Right. It's not uh, the business doesn't burn down, where you don't find the the building is rotted from the inside or anything weird like that. You, you just have this story about this girl um, who goes to work for for a, a, another merchant, mm -hmm. and uh, her sister used to work there. And her sister had uh, just one day dropped dead. Yep. Just she was going to the bathhouse, got a nosebleed and died. Yep. Just fell over while she was walking. So it was just easiest for um, our friendly neighborhood um, pl job placement man to just have her little sister take over her her job there. Mm -hmm. Now you come to find out that this place. Um, is one of the has one of the most successful um, retention rates of employees. Right. So um, usually, for every ten people that are sent to a business, two of them will make it. The, the rest of them will either quit, uh, try and run off of funds, or different different things, but in this one, almost everyone who starts working within 10 days becomes a model employee. 
Mm-hmm. This is this is a it's a miracle business, right? And right there, that should tell you that something's fucked up. Yeah, something weird's happening here. <laughs> so um, she goes there, and now the whole story hinges upon the belief um, that once someone dies, there are what forty nine days, forty nine days before their soul moves on. Mm-hmm. But within those forty nine days, their spirit stays in, in the area where they where they died, doing whatever it is that bodyless spirits do. In so this what, case, right? it's hanging out with your little sister. Right. So the little sister goes to start working there, and uh, she's having a difficult time. And she is the only employee ever in the history of this company to have a difficult time <laughs> adjusting. Mm-hmm. And uh, at night, crying herself to sleep every night, or practically every night, she's visited by the spirit of her sister, who basically it tells her, assures her, yeah, don't worry, you've got this, I'm here with you, don't worry. But that reassurance from the sister is also couched in within a nightmare, right. that they're being pursued by something in the darkness that, that they can't see. Yes. So one, one day the maid, the head maid um, comes to little sister and says, it's been 49 days, huh? Since your sister died. Yeah. Tomorrow you're going to the futon storeroom. Right. So the futon storeroom is this, um, we're led to believe that is this rite of passage that all the employees uh, have to go and spend one night in the futon storeroom. And usually it happens within um, 10 days of them getting hired. Right. Coincidence. And, and all the other maids are like, you know, why has it been so long for her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we find out it's because the 49 days since her sister passed and her sister passed, while living at the business. Right. So they have to make sure that her sister's spirit is not around. Because the headmistress is not quite what she seems. Right. And so our heroine spends the night in the futon storeroom, has another nightmare, but makes it. And when we we she the morning comes, we find out that the the head housemaid is you know she's exhausted, she hasn't slept all night, and she's like, "You beat me and she the only thing she says to her is, "You beat me and you know i can't I don't understand how you beat me, but you know the forty nine days have passed. How could you beat me?" You know, and then a couple of days later, calls her to say, "Come uh, clean out the storeroom with me." Right now, all the other maids are like, "Ha ha ha! She's gonna get in trouble." It turns out that the head housemaid doesn't want her to clean the storeroom with her. She—that's the most private location she can find—to inform her of the truth, and that is that she is possessed by a demon. And that every employee must spend a night in the futon storeroom 
to have part of their soul sucked out of them by a demon. Right. It's kind of like for the prosperity of the business, uh, a deal was struck. Well, you come to find out that that uh, the reason why she's possessed by this demon, and the demon will possess a member of the staff every generation. Mm-hmm. Um, when seven generations ago, when the business was first established, the proprietor killed someone, right, and buried them. Um, I want to say underneath the, where the futon store. Yeah, it was underneath the futon store. Yeah. So, um, in, instead of, well, it does two things. First, the, the demon kills the um, proprietor of the of the business early. Mm-hmm. So every every uh, when they reach like mid thirties, they die. Right. So they have to. Um, that's why. There's seven generations that have run the place where there should have only been like three or four. Right. Um, and then the, the Oni possesses one of the, the household staff to indoctrinate the, the rest of the workers. Because we all know that a, uh, the best worker is a soulless drum. Yes. And it becomes kind of like, it's a mutually beneficial thing is, you know, I eat the souls of your employees, your business prospers, we're all happy. Right. As long as you continue to feed me, your business will prosper. Yes. But our heroine breaks that cycle by surviving her night in the futon storeroom with the help of her sister's spirit. Who has stuck around one more day. Just, yeah, on the 50th day, she's still there because she knows that this is what's going on. She had also survived. Um, her sister mm-hmm. had survived this process um, because of the bond that she had with her little sister. Right. Um, prior to, to coming to the, to the business. Right, right. And it was just the strain of that is what ended up killing her. So and again, this one definitely has more of that um, visceral feel to it, to the mm-hmm. action at the end. Well, this was this this house ended up being destroyed as well. Yeah, they well they, they, they dug all, up the futon storeroom and found the skeleton with the horns. They all gotta go. Yeah, get some big cabapidents in these. But this one, like you said, has more of a. Uh, more of a, a horror story feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, more of that zap gotcha ending. Yep, yep. Especially that ending, the the reveal of the skeleton. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You don't have the ambiguity in this one that you had in the first two. You know, there definitely was some fucked up shit happening. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the next story on the list, which is The Plum Rain's Fall. And this is a story about guilt. Yeah. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This story is about guilt. Yeah, we've moved on from revenge to guilt. Mm-hmm. Now, this story is is another one of those where you're not really sure 
whether or not this is a supernatural event or just a coincidence. Right. But taken from the point of view of the young girl, um, Oko, mm-hmm. it's definitely a supernatural event in her eyes. I mean, she basically spends 15 years stark raving mad because of this. Right. So whether or not it's supernatural, it definitely had some real-world psychological effect on this young woman. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's another one of those. It starts with a simple and innocuous thing. Um, the family goes to a shrine festival, and they're you know they ever you go to shrine festivals, you get your fortune told, you know you say your prayers and and, and do all these little odds and ends that you don't really think about all the time unless you are a very religious person. Um. Oko, I believe, is it, it wasn't Oko? Oko, yeah. yeah. Uh, has her fortune told and ends up it being a rather negative fortune. Oh no, Oko is the, the neighbor, my fault. Oko is the neighbor? Oko is the neighbor. Her, she is, hold on. Um, uh, it just says Oko all over the place. Yes. O-N. What's that? O-N. O-N? O-N. Okay. Um, so, O-N, um, she misses out on a job opportunity. This this is not a story where, you know, a person gets successfully brought into another business and then bad shit happens. She actually missed out on an opportunity. Right. She, she was promised a job at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. She asked me, she probably got the better end of the stick, but... She was promised a job um, because of her reputation as a as a great worker and a great caregiver. Mm-hmm. And uh, she lost out the job because they went for someone who might not be as great of a, of a worker, but was pretty. Right, because their business philosophy was similar to Hooters. Right. As Very long as they're pretty, we can train them, but you can't fix up. To, to, that's almost like a direct quote. <laughs> yeah. So, um, understandably, this kind of uh, stings with O.N. Right. Because, you know, one of the one of the things that you find out throughout these stories is the the pressure of not being good enough for any of these jobs is just m- more than they can handle. Right. Well, and also, it's a she was basically. Called ugly, right? <laughs> I mean, they basically said, "Yeah, you might be good, but you, but you're, you're a dog, right?" And, and you know, <laughs> and, and I don't care who you are. Being told you're 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 ugly, it's just it's a blow. It doesn't matter if you're if you are or not, and and whether it's in the eye of the beholder, just being flat out told you're not good enough because you you don't look good. Right. And and yeah, and in particular, we're, we're set up that where working age is very close to marrying age. And both of the working and getting married are two things that that um, young women in Old Edo in the, the Old Edo of these stories. Uh, half are, are, you know, that's like they're dependent. Yeah. You know, you want to find a good husband. You want to find a good job. Right. Um. 
and she's been told that she's she's ugly, so she's not good enough for this job. And that also carries over as like, well, who the hell's going to marry me anyway? Right. Now so it basically just destroys this young lady's life. Right. So at the shrine festival, she has her her, her uh, fortune read, and she doesn't get a very good fortune. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say what it is, but it, it says it's bad. Right. It actually does say what it is, but I have no idea what that portends mm-hmm. because I don't speak Japanese. Right. But there is a ritual. It's like if you don't like your fortune, take it to this tree, tie it to the tree, and give plum your fortune tree. back to the gods. Yeah. Hence the name of the. Right. It's a plum tree. So you right. take it back to the plum tree, you tie your fortune to the plum tree, and you give it back to the gods. You know, kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those interesting things that, yeah, you don't, you're not bound to your destiny. Except where Oko comes from, their guardian. Right. She comes from a, um, a remote village where there's a mountain god. And if you get a bad fortune, you can tie it to the plum tree and say who you want that fortune to affect. Mm-hmm. So, and those are your two choices, because if you tie it to the tree with the hopes of, of ridding yourself of the fortune, it comes back on you threefold. Right. So basically, you can either accept your fate, pawn your fate off on somebody else, or accept triple fate. Right. So... Um, O.N. decides to uh, give her bad luck to her rival. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then feels guilty over it when it turns out that her rival gets fucking smallpox <laughs> within like days. Within days. And then dies. It, it gets fired because we're at a restaurant, kid. We can't have somebody with smallpox up in here. Right. Um, gets, so she gets, catches smallpox, she gets fired, and then she dies. Right. And then, and then the, the, uh, the job placement officer's like, good news. Uh, that <laughs> restaurant job you were looking for just opened up. <laughs> yeah, the, the girl I got to, to take her place, well, she died. <laughs> Lucky you. Wow. Which, you know, and it is basically said somewhat like that. It's like, well, you must have really good luck. Right. And, and it turns out that that just sends her over the edge because, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I just killed her. Right. So she, uh, she goes insane, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, she becomes bedridden. She can barely feed herself. And she takes that statement of her being ugly to heart, where she covers her face with a cloth mm-hmm. um, 24 hours a day. She eats behind the cloth. She does everything behind the cloth and only takes it off when no one else is near. Right. For 15 years. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. So, her brother, who is actually the narrator of this story. Right. And a really nice guy. Right. Um, he sees what happens with his sister, and he tries his hardest to uh, to help her out. 
to do anything. And right before she puts on the veil, um, he sees her face break out into pustules and boils. Mm -hmm. Almost like the Black Plague has taken her over. Yes. And that's the last he saw of her face for 15 years. She puts the veil over. Now we go to the future. The story actually takes place after um, O.N. dies. Mm-hmm. Um, she finally just gives up the ghost. And uh, oh, oh, and oh, I forgot his name. Mitsukagi or something like that. It's uh, Minokichi. I don't know where I got Mitsukagi from. So Minokichi goes to uh, you know view his sister's body because because having uh, you know Minokichi and his family they also run a successful business right he's an oil salesman right and they can't support a a family member you know they don't have enough people around to you know support a family member you know, who's essentially an invalid right it's he has a successful business. For himself, and it's it's enough for him and his family. But beyond that, that that's it. Right. So so another merchant family takes her in and and takes care of her because they right. have the staff to do it, and as 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 a favor because this, right. because you do. Right. They were Buddhas to to him. Right. And so he, he inquires as to, you know, they're going to make the funeral arrangements and everything because they feel like they have to see it all through. And uh, I don't know. I don't remember how it comes up, but uh, he inquires about her face. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, well, you know, she was she looks so peaceful in death. Like she was pretty. And he was like, but what about the boils? Right. And they're like, what boils? I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Look, her, look, check it out. And ta-da, peaceful repose. It was without a blemish. Yeah. Freakish, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, this is not so much really ghost stories, you know, in this one. Yeah, this one's more like the, just the power of guilt and that family bond and how her her guilt was so powerful that it washed over to uh, bend his perception as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she uh, she died and and oh, just completely overwhelmed with guilt. And again, we are uncertain as to whether or not you know her wish. That the bad fortune go to the the young woman at the restaurant, you know, actually was real, or if she just feels guilty over a coincidence that this woman from the she was from the country now she wasn't from the city, right? You know, caught got smallpox and ended up dying. And it's not like people don't get smallpox all the time, mm-hmm. especially in the 19th century, right? You can turn around without. Getting smallpox, right? And, and and it's it's also mentioned several of the other characters mentioned that they you know they recover from smallpox pretty easily, right? You know, and which only reinforces the guilt, right? Because it's like, well, you know, he got over smallpox, why didn't she? And 
Yeah, so you have that kind of like backward superstition sort of thing going on. Right. And and you don't really know whether or not was the if the wish came true or if it's that's just how it turned out. Right. It's it's that re, it's being reinforced your superstition is being reinforced by coincidence. It's like stepping on a crack and later on that day you come to find out your mom ha- took a spill and hurt herself. Right. Right, it's it's confirmation bias. Right, it, I mean, at at best, this story this is a, this is story is all about confirmation bias. Right, you know, and and there you go. But that's the thing is, it could have been supernatural. I mean, there it is that been. old legend of the mountain god. Right, and if you do it wrong, it comes back to to get you. And it wasn't at a shrine, and you know we did the prescribed rituals, you know, and that that part is is very entwined in the culture as well. Yeah, did she do it right? Because you're supposed to say it out loud. This is true, but she didn't say it out loud. She mouthed it, so you never know. It's 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 ambiguity. Once again, that it it, it it's very indicative of this kind of ghost story, but. Then again, like you were saying with Japanese parables, it's part of Japanese storytelling to have this ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned before the show that it's hard to tell whether that is a a feature of Japanese storytelling or a feature of translation. How it works out in translation. Yeah, um, Yeah, all of these stories are translated... One of one of the issues that I have with stories in translation, um, you know, I think I've mentioned this a couple times about uh, reading um, Romance of the Three Kingdoms and and uh, Journey to the West and these these you know, Chinese classics, is that it seems that you might be missing something because there are nuances in language that don't come over into translation well. Right, especially in in a language like Japanese, where a lot of the cleverness in the storytelling will be in the uh, character they use, which will have the same um, sound, mm-hmm. but but convey different meaning. And right. so they can, so you have, basically you effectively have a pun that you can't translate. Right. Right. I mean, a lot of times, or or something symbolic that you can't translate. And often, if you read like, um, if you read manga, the whoever translated will have a note on that, Mm -hmm. and and kind of explain a subtlety that has happened in the story that, unless you're reading it in Japanese, you're not going to get. Right. Exactly. And, and and there are also you know little things like like character names are very important as well, right? And and things like that. And there are certain words in these stories that are not translated from the Japanese. No, and and it's funny because if you look up a lot of those words on Google, you'll get the name of a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Like the, all the names of the businesses, right? Are, are, are like uh, well, ya means seller, right? I got that much. Or right, shop. Like, right. <laughs> but uh, you, you're like, oh yeah, this is the whatever province, 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it doesn't translate very well. And, you know, names are like that. I mean, right. names don't translate. I mean, what does Steve mean? You know, uh, it's a fucking name. Right. For us, it's it's a name. Right. But it's the same thing, like somebody's name, like O-N. Well, how does that translate? It doesn't. It's a fucking name. Right. But because these names are composed of certain characters, often there are puns within the names of characters. Right. And you're just not going to get that unless right. it's explained to you. Right. And sadly, I don't speak Japanese well enough to obtain a copy in the original and and speak on any differences. Right. Um, the final story we're going to look at today is the Oni of Adachi House, which is which is an interesting, almost romantic kind of story. Yeah, this is uh, almost like a one of those young adult spiritual romance stories or supernatural romance story. I, I think this would this would make a, a an excellent film. It's Japanese Twilight. No, it's not Japanese <laughs> Twilight. Don't don't put people off on that, man. <laughs> Sorry, that's much better. This is not Japanese. <laughs> but it is about a, a a mortal woman who is in love with a uh, a spiritual being. I don't, I don't necessarily think of it as being in love. I think they are kindred spirits. Yeah. Um, what we have is, is we have uh, another successful business. Uh, the young master has taken over. His mother, they're, they're ink sellers. They sell uh, brushes and cakes of ink for writing. Right. Um, and his mother and father ran the business. His father died. His mother was sharp as a tack as when it comes to business. And they're just, she's, she is said to be an excellent judge of character. Yeah. Bringing people in to make deals with and, and for employees and whatnot. And for once we have a, a son who isn't a rat bastard. No, he's actually a very nice kid. And even to the point where he, goes to get married even though they are one of the most successful businesses they have tons of money he could actually you know marry a lord's daughter yeah they live wanted to they basically they live on a multi-building compound right um and no he he doesn't he doesn't go after that His, his mother needs somebody to take care of her and so he decides to marry a woman who can take care of his mother and and that's about it. I mean, somebody of good character to take care of the mother. And he runs across this woman uh, working at another work for another family, who's her her job is complete shit. She her, her she was hired as a as a housemaid, but right. she ends up taking care of um, dying uh, father, right? The elder, the owner, and he's a he's a dick, right? He's like a dick. Ass um, a lot of the a lot of the other housemates, a lot of the staff are you know mean to her, and she just like had, and she just has this really harsh upbringing. But you know she bears it all with with uh, kind of a nobility, and 
he comes along and he makes this deal to to marry her. It's, it's almost like she gets traded, like she yeah. was playing for the Yankees, um, but the Yankees don't need a shortstop. So, but you know, Baltimore does. So they trade her to Baltimore because they need a shortstop. Right, right. And she comes in. She comes to start working for them. She she marries, so she becomes the the head of the house, um, as well. So she has that position of authority. Um, and she's not really exactly sure how to deal with that because, you know, she finds herself getting angry. And as the head of the house, she can express that anger and disappointment in her subordinates. But she knows how it feels. So she doesn't. So she doesn't. Um, her second in command, the, the, the head maid who's there, can't stand her uh, and can't stand the mother either. And the mother strikes up in like an instant rapport with her. She just absolutely loves this girl. And they spend a lot of time together. But the old woman is kind of on the creepy side because every time they talk, she keeps looking over by the, the brazier you know, where the fire is. Now she does. And like, the, her like old, she's talking to somebody. Her old um, caretaker, the, the, the housemaid doesn't like the mother-in-law, like you said, but she also complains of an odor. Right. Like that, a stench. That no one else can, can smell. smell. Right. And and she makes fun of her, of, of the narrator, for not smelling it. Mm-hmm. Right. The the head maid is, is just completely down on the new wife. The, the head maid's lucky to have kept her job. Yeah. <laughs> if there was anybody else in that position, she would have been fired. Hell, if it was most of if it was most of the wives in the story so far, she would have been like out on her ass. Uh, you know, in a heartbeat. Yeah, you know, she's lucky she got such a nice person to be the first, head of the household. Yeah, first off, you're disrespecting the old mistress, and then you're disrespecting me to my face. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so they strike up an instant rapport, and one day, uh, the son says, look, you know, I've got this new guy coming. He says he's selling this, you know, hot new ink. You know, very at, at aromatic ink. Right, very aromatic ink. You know, it's just like the stuff this other guy sells. You, know, it, you can smell it on your brush for a week after you wash it off. It's awesome smelling. We found out a way to do the same thing cheaper. You know, do you want to carry our ink? You know, he's like, well, come meet me here on Tuesday. And then he tells his wife, you know, when he comes to meet me, I'm going to set up in this room, open the door so my mother can see him. And she says, you know, confused as to why, but well, she goes along with it. Mother's a good judge of character. Yep. All she has to do is look at the guy. Mm-hmm. And so the appointed day comes. They She opens the door so the mother can see across the yard into the, the little room where they're having their meeting. And he opens the door so they can see across. And suddenly the ink seller just flips his fucking shit. <laughs> he just like looks into the middle distance with horror in his eyes. And uh, there's no deal. 
and then there's no deal. And and the mother says, yeah, we won't be talking to that guy. And and you as a reader are sitting there going, what the fuck just happened? Right, right. I mean, you know, there's something kind of going on because they keep alluding to, you know, the mother like looking over to right. the middle of the room or something like that and like nodding her head like, yeah, you know what's up. Right. And but I mean, you're still just like, what what just happened? Right. And she's ha- she's has these conversations with the with the new wife, and these you know uh, things like you know you've led a very narrow and sheltered existence. You know you don't know what it's like to love, or you know you haven't you haven't lived right really. So it's it's really no wonder you don't see anything. And, and she's the, still going, what the fuck? Does right, that exactly. And so after a cold takes the mother-in-law. Uh, and she gets better. She decides that she's going to tell the new wife the story. And it's a story that she hasn't even told her son. But she, you know, she has taken such a shine to this girl that, yeah, she deserves to know the whole truth. So she tells the story of her own upbringing and, and her own first job and how, you know, her bosses mistreated her. And they end up going to this house in a village. And the her master gets sick. They shuffle them off to this house because that's what they do. They put sick people and criminals and shit in this house for but so it, much time. It's an old abandoned mansion mm-hmm. um, that has basically fall, fallen so far into disrepair. But one part of it has been kept up enough where you can have sick people live there, especially communicable diseases, so the rest of the of the village doesn't get sick. Mm-hmm. And when when asked to explain it, the, the priest of the village says that this house absorbs all, all the uncleanness of the village. Right. And so you have, you know, he, get, he sits there, he gets better, and he eventually goes home. She wants to stay because she starts seeing things out of the corner of her eyes. Movements and shadows like something's watching her. And it turns out there is a spirit that has manifested or moved into this house or something. They're not quite sure where it came from. But whoever looks at the spirit basically ends up seeing a mirror into their own spirit. Mm -hmm. So um, originally I had thought that that is what the mother had that power. Right. And you you end up finding out that she befriends a spirit in her youth who has that power. And everyone else, these horrible, horrific things, because most people are, are shit. Mm-hmm. But she looks at, at the spirit and she only sees a lonely, thin young man. Right. And which is a reflection of herself because she is very alone. Right. And so she gets forced out of the village, even though she wants to live here with the spirit forever, convinces the spirit to come with her. And, you know, she goes, she goes back. It's time for her to get married. And she marries the, uh, the, the ink store owner. Right. And, because he was the first one who did not, you know, see the Oni 
and was repulsed by it or frightened by it. Right. And she, I mean, basically, they build this business up because she is able to make it so they only do business with people who are reputable. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, the Oni scares the shit out of them. And, and because the Oni appears differently to everyone. Right. And if you, the uglier you are inside, the uglier and more horrifying the Oni is when you see it. Right. And so we find out that the uh, the man with the scented ink cakes uh, must have been a very ugly and disreputable person because he was scared shitless by the Oni. Right. Now, here's um, the thing. Here's the narrator of the story. She doesn't see anything. Right. And the mother explains that as well. You haven't experienced you. You're incomplete as a human being. You don't have any experiences. You've never loved. You've never hated. You know you don't you don't allow yourself to feel your emotions. You've never you know nothing about the world. No wonder you can't see him because you know you're kind of empty inside. So the oni is clearly here, but what you see is just empty. And finally, the mother dies. And, and yeah, we're going to give away the ending to this because it's it's kind of a potent ending. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those, like, there's there's a little dust in the driving endings. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the mother dies. And for the first time in her life, the, the, the young woman mourns. She's saddened by this. And, you know, all of her all of her grief and everything, she allows herself to feel for the first time. She goes outside to wash her face and she looks up and she sees the Oni exactly as mother saw it. And then she wonders if it's going to stay or if it's going to go with mom. Mm hmm. And we're not we're not told. Yeah. But we do we do realize that through the relationship that she builds with her her mother in law, she grows to love her husband as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, that she actually, you know, that that emptiness inside her is, is able to fill up, and she allows herself to essentially become human. Right. So, just a um, it's a it's a it's. A, different in tone this story than the rest of them all the rest of them all had even though they weren't necessarily horror stories they were they had elements of horror and and most of the supernatural um events were had negative consequences right um except in in, in the uh the futon but even that it was a, a, a sort of a supernatural battle for right. race um, this one, it was just, you know, it's the story of how um, this woman gained humanity. Mm-hmm. Yep. And by, by doing stuff for other people, more or less. Yep. Essentially, yeah, being able to, and, and, and in doing stuff for other people, learning to do stuff for herself. Well, right, and to care for somebody who, in turn, cares for you, as opposed to caring for somebody who just wants to pinch your ass and get your pants. Right, which is pretty much everybody else in the book. Right. With, with maybe the exception of Genji. Right. 
because he doesn't know about such things yet. <laughs> and he may never because because of what happened to him. That's right. And yeah, that's, uh, you know, I was, you know, even though this, this story also, I mean, she even kind of, Miyabi kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit in, in having the narrator of the Oni at Adachi house say, yeah, you know, I'm, I know I'm running a little bit long and, and kind of going around about by giving you all this history, but you'll, you'll get, you'll get what I'm talking about in a second here. <laughs> and it, it, if it were written poorly, or if it were uninteresting, mm-hmm. it would drag. Right. Um, but it's not. And like I said in the beginning, you don't get a lot of the common point of view of, of Edo period Japan. You don't get the merchants. You don't get the peasants. Normally, you get samurai. Right. You get <laughs> and you- the lords. And those are where the stories are. Mm-hmm. Um, even other uh, like folk tales and uh, and um, ghost stories that I've read um, from Japan are more wealthy, more status um, narration. Right. You're either you're either you know this is one of the romanticized classes of Japan, either right. the samurai or the monks. Right. Because monks are romanticized as well. Um, yeah, and you get just these common stories, and you you also get through that that a lot of this kind of stuff just kind of happens every day, right? Yeah, and you had mentioned that it's it, they're very slice of life. Mm-hmm. Um, with if you just took the supernatural element out of it, they are very slice of life. They're very soap opera ish. Yeah, you get a lot of the intrigues of you know having a household of all of these different people working together of different social strata um, and their interactions. And it's it really the, the house itself, the business that these, these, these stories take place in is kind of like a microcosm of Japanese society. You have, you know, your pecking order and, and this person is at, at this position. It's very uh, Confucian. Right. Well, reading it, it, it because Confucianism was was very much part of Japanese society and you it's probably the hardest part to read if you're not used to a, a culture where that occurs um, so you know I think you know I read it and we got another good review uh, from Jeffrey Thomas was raving about this book as well earlier in the week and you know, we know he knows a lot about Vietnamese culture, right? Um, so it's it's one of those things you're familiar with it, so you're able to engross yourself with it a little bit more. Um, if you're interested in Japanese culture, this is a very good book to read as well. Um, just just for the simple fact that you get this insight into day to day life, what yeah. it's like. Not all wandering around from village to village, pitting one side against the other. Yep. Or both sides against yourself. Right. Or and swinging swords and things like this. You know, this is a. These stories take place during a time of peace. Yeah. This uh, the the time period for these stories are the 1800s, basically 19th mm-hmm. century Edo Japan. 
um, where you were actually seeing a, a um, an erosion of the samurai class mm -hmm. and and the merchant class was gaining more um, I guess just status and that's where the money was mm -hmm. yep. um, you know the classic samurai stories that you get um, take place in up in the period where there, there's either war where everyone has a job which is fighting the war mm -hmm. or post-war during the peace where not everyone not all the samurai are well off and 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 uh able to support themselves right right and, and in a lot of those cases it's very rural right um you know these these are urban stories these are stories in the city of edo which even then was a very large city um, but yeah, like you said, most of the time you, you get Japanese stories, you get a lot of samurai stuff, although, you know, a lot of it is a fic, you know, the classic samurai movie and whatnot is a fictionalized Edo period. Well, of course. I mean, it's not like, it's the same thing with, you know, our Westerns or whatever. It's oh yeah. Very fictionalized. Yeah. Romanticized and, and whatnot. Um, almost like a parallel universe. It's like, um, Kung Fu movies, you know, you see the period pieces, and it's, you know, it takes place in such and such a year, but it's a almost a parallel universe. The reality is a little bit different. Right. And the same Wait, thing. You mean people can't climb trees like using key? And can't handspring off of water? No. Man, uh, my whole world is just terrible. <laughs> but in, 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 in this book, this is more of a, a realistic um, Edo, Japan, Japanese culture. Safe, um, safe ghosts. Right. Oh, and not God. the macho samurai, you know, I see a demon, oh, I'll cut it with my sword. Right. You know, this is just kind of... The soul of the samurai. And people just, you know, this, this is normal people doing normal things, and as a result, they're ghost stories are kind of normal. Yeah, and it's it's weird because you look at, well, I mean, just look at our ghost stories. Like, if you turn on TV and watch, like, uh, I don't know, Ghost Hunters or whatever, I mm -hmm. mean, it's normal people that that everything that you see on those shows, and here's a little disclosure, I don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> so, um, there's always, they always leave room for, there's a logical explanation for it. We're not going to tell you what it is because that's not the point of the show. Right. But there's always that, that, that um, you're able to suspend your disbelief enough to believe the ghost part mm -hmm. when, you know, your, your mind should be telling you there's no such thing as ghosts, but it's fun. To, right. To, to and, and, a, and another, another contrast to this is that the ghosts are, are normal. Whereas and and say you know even like Mr. James or something like that, the occurrence of the supernatural leads to this like huge, like mind shattering you know the window the window the you know the eye kind of moment. Whereas you know the the real scary shit that happens in these stories are humanity's brutality toward itself. Yeah, I mean there's there's some like some uh, Trump kid level happen. <laughs> um, debauchery happening here mm -hmm. in stories. 
you know, and it's just like you do this and, and these sorts of things happen. It's, it's this perfectly natural. And, you know, you say, well, you know, I don't believe in ghosts. But when when it framed in this type of cultural context, it's a little bit easier to believe in ghosts if they're just kind of normal. Right. You know, it's not this huge, you know, it does this. Oh, they're you know spirits out for revenge and stuff like that, you know, or unfinished business or whatever mythology, you know, American parapsychology or Western parapsychology has created as these explanations, and I. And, Sorry, I don't mean to use the term parapsychology. Um, it's more like just ghost hunting, where you know, everything's fucking demons or unfinished business, right? Shit like that. Um, but you know, these types of things are are it's just normal. I mean, they talk about you know being deceived by a fox, you know, right. as in the, you know with the with the same um, casualness of I stub my toe on the curb, right? You know that sort of thing, and right. it's it's definitely a part of their the culture mm-hmm. to 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 have the supernatural and the the natural side by side, and and it's not like huge events. It's not like you know the second coming of Gozer or anything like that. Right. It's it is things like being deceived by by a fox or you know. Um, Tanuki playing a trick, I believe, was was used in the Oni of Adachi House. Yeah, you know, and and really to even to even say it's supernatural in the context of these types of ghost stories is really not giving not giving it the proper credit because these things are not supernatural. Right. No, you're right. But we have in the in the West we have this idea that you know oh you know there's this you know normal everyday thing and then there's all this shit going on and on top of it you know in in this type of framework it's just this is all of this stuff happens because that you know it's the same as you know the leaves turn colors in the fall it's just shit that happens it's the natural order of things and over in the west we have this you know it's not natural right there's a clear separation between uh you know the, the the natural, the real world, and the spiritual world. Right. And so I would say, you know, go out and, and pick up a copy of this book. It is available on Amazon. Um, if you can find a physical copy of it, do that as well. Uh, it's it's a great read. It's it's one of those types of reads that you, know, you don't want to do what we do and try to plow through the whole thing in a week or two weeks. Right. You know, read it at your at, at at leisure and absorb you know all of this um, this soup of culture that's in this book as well. And, you know, there's a lot of insight into the human condition within this story uh, that's that's usually missing from a lot of tales of the supernatural. And with that, we'll say um, goodnight, Gracie. Oh, I don't get to say my oh. pithy comment. Go, on, go ahead, say your pithy comment. No, that's all right. No, that's that's for the gaming stuff. Good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie.